The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Adrian. I'll be taking us through this next part. And we're in a three-week mini-series which we are looking at this whole area of Advent. Of understanding this gives us a moment to pause within everything else that's going on in life and to reflect on the wonder of what it means that God, through his son Jesus, came and lived amongst us in order that we could know the fullness of the life that he offers. And therefore, if you're around last week, Mike did an absolutely amazing, awesome job in starting the series. If you didn't hear the talk, I'd encourage you to go online to listen to it. But in it, what we've said is the three talks we're doing are linked together, and so last week, we looked at the whole area of facing darkness. Uh, today, we're going to look at seeing light. Uh, and then next week, Rich is going to look at the whole area of waiting expectantly. As we believe that Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again, is going to come back and cause this world to be filled with the wonder of his goodness and love. Everything we've celebrated already in worship. And therefore, I don't want to take away from what Rich is going to share, but it will be a good end. But today, as I said, we want to look at seeing light. But before we get there, I, to be honest, I need to confess something to everyone. Um, I felt like actually it wouldn't be right to continue this morning without confessing something. And that is, I really love Christmas lights. I, I can't help it. I just really love Christmas lights. If we can go on one side. Um, I don't know what it is about them, but I try and pretend that I'm a bit of a bar humbug around Christmas and tend to kind of, uh, you know, Santa's with lights, uh, who cares? But actually, inwardly, what's going on is I love it. I love it because there's something about walking the streets at night, and I don't know about you, but it just gets darker quicker, doesn't it, now? And I, I think it gets about half three, four, and it's suddenly dark, and I'm thinking, man, is it bedtime? I don't understand. It's like, like this doesn't feel right. And you kind of get up in darkness, you're around in darkness. Darkness is everywhere. And I have a dog, which um, I've often talked about, a small comedy dog called Ted, and I have to take him for walks. And as I take him for a walk, once it's like evening, it's just not very fun. You know, it's raining, it's dark, and it just feels alone and it feels cold. And in that darkness of feeling alone and cold, suddenly I might be walking along and there's a house down my road, and they are amazing. 
From the 1st of December, they start decorating the house. And it isn't quite to this standard, but it is tastefully done. Not saying that isn't. But it's... <laughs> they put loads of little lights skimmered around the front of their house, all around the bushes, around the fence, around the trees. And it does something to you as you go through the darkness of just houses, clothes, and coldness surrounding. Suddenly I see the lights and I think, I'm not alone. It feels warm. And my guess is, maybe that love of Christmas lights speaks of something profoundly deeper within every single one of us. That maybe this season uniquely reveals itself to us. That actually for each of us, we have to come to this realization that we face darkness. And Mike did an excellent job of allowing us to see that last week. And I'm not going to repeat his preach, to be honest, because it was just too good. And as I said to others this morning, there's, there's always a, a sense of trepidation when you're following someone who's done something really good. Because you think, I hope everyone's forgotten how good it was. Just then I can kind of tiptoe in and, and kind of just do what I do. And it'll kind of stumble through some words, some of them made up, some of them right. And we'll hopefully make our way through. But it was excellent. Let's get that over and done with. It was really good. It will do you good. But in it, as he said, we face darkness. We find that for Isaiah, the, the prophet that we've based this Advent series on, he was in a moment in history where the community, the people of God, the family of God were facing darkness. Darkness from within of how their actions were portraying them, of their justice for the poor and their care of those who are widows, widows and elderly the way they were being influenced by the cultures around them, as well as being oppressed by the cultures around them. But also, when I say, but it isn't just darkness then, it was also darkness when Jesus came on the earth. The people of God at that point were not much different, but were also being oppressed by a different empire that time, the Romans. But then Mike kind of got to this point and said, yeah, but it wasn't just historic, it's also now that we can look at the world around us and think it just seems quite dark. You have to watch the news for the last 24 hours and the uncertainty we're living with, the sense of kind of violence and destruction at places where you just think, the world just seems like it's going mad. And in that, you just think, man, it's dark out there. But to be honest, we don't have to just go out there. We can just look in and say, maybe it's inwardly. We look at this season and, and it just feels dark. Maybe it is with memories of what's been. Maybe it is through the life that we're living through at the moment. I know for me and my family, you know, we, this week I get a privilege, but it's also with sadness, I get to do my father-in-law's funeral. So this Thursday, that's what I'm doing, and, and in that, it kind of causes this darkness of death to be around you, and you, you see it, and, and in this, you think, yeah, there is darkness out there, but it's also darkness that we face. But the reality of this moment is as we face the darkness, we get to see the light. And Isaiah didn't want to leave us in darkness. He wants us to understand that there is light. And just as we did last week, we're now going to quickly light a candle. It's not kind of some moment of thinking, all right, it's now mysticism. No, it's a moment of saying, actually, in this moment, we remember that light has come. And why we do it is because we're multi-sensory beings. We're people who think both in terms of what we hear, but also what we see. 
And when you light a candle, suddenly it allows you this moment to pause and reflect and say, just as I've lit this candle, I remember that the light who was the light of the world came and lived amongst us in order that you and I could know this light. But what does that light look like? Well, in Isaiah verses 2 and 6, it says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. It's like we pause there because that moment is, like, well, what is the light then? Is it something? And Isaiah says, no, it's someone. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Isaiah, as he utters these words, it's like a time traveler. That's what he was as a prophet. Suddenly, in this moment, 800 years before Jesus comes on earth, Isaiah has seen something as though it is. And he says, I know that the one who will rescue everyone, the one who will be the light to the whole world, is coming. It's as certain now as it could ever be. And he says, oh, he's gone. And he's seen it in the future and pulls it back and says, this is what's going to happen. Not wishful thinking, hoped-filled, based truth on who the character of God is. This is what God showed me, and therefore it will be. And he says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Alec Mottier says this about that moment. He says, the emphasis falls not on what the child will do when grown up, but on the mere fact of his birth. In his coming, all that results is at once secured. And that's mind-blowing. It isn't Isaiah at this point is prophesying, saying, hey, unto us a child is born, and he'll become a king, and this is the kind of king he is. No, no, he says, no, the moment he is born, hope has come. Life is redefined forever for everyone who receives him. And you see, this is the moment we get to see that this isn't any old child. This is a son, that word son is a reference to say, well, what kind of son? Well, there's two lines of a kind of string that have played out throughout the Old Testament of this word son. One is a son that is always this one that's looked to, a son who'll be an heir of the best king there ever was on earth, an earthly king called David. But a promise from the line of David will come, this king who'll last forever. So he's not like a human king. He has to be different. He has to be a a God king. So there's that line there of this is the kind of son, but also this son that's been spoken of that we see throughout the Old Testament of one who's called the son of God. There's going to be this one who is God. So when Isaiah prophesied, oh, there's one who's coming, and the mere moment he's born prevails and presents and proclaims that light has come, is the one who is the eternal God King, the one who is the Son of God. And then he says this, he says, says and who he is, he's going to have the government, the rule, the reign upon his shoulders. He's a king with a kingdom. And in a moment, we're going to get to see what that kingdom looks like. But in it, what Isaiah's doing here is saying, well, why has God on his shoulders? I don't know about you, but you suddenly think, why has he got it on his shoulders? I think that. Maybe you don't. I think... Government on his shoulders. Maybe you're suddenly thinking of Atlas, you know, that big statue of the guy with the globe on his back. You think, oh, maybe that's it. No, no. It's a word interplay. You see, previous to this, I think it's around verse 4, Isaiah has spoken about the people 
the people who were God's people were living yoked way down by trying to make sense of life through their own means. Burdened, broken. He says, oh no, there's one who's going to come. He's going to lift that all off you. Do you have to be weighed down by you trying to make life work? Now he's going to cause you to share in his rule and reign where life works. So you've already had it read, but there's moments where I think we have to point them out, even though they're so obvious, because that's why they're there. And so already Emily's read out in worship this moment in John where John, who is the beloved disciple of Jesus, I love how John reveals himself because he always refers to himself as the beloved one. In other words, he knew that God loved him through Jesus. He knew that. Now, all that we've been singing about in worship, you know, because of Jesus, we're children of God, which means that's what we are, children of God, forever, eternally, unconditionally loved, John knew that. He couldn't help but get hold of it, so he had to describe himself. Who am I? Beloved one. He wasn't arrogant. Now, he, he, should, he was kind of living an example of how you and I should always live. Who are we? Beloved ones. Not that we wrestle with it. Oh, no, but if you knew me, Adrian, you knew what I'd done this week. Oh, way down. No, who am I? <laughs> Beloved one. That's who John said he was. That's who he says you are. But in it, he then draws this string and says, hey, do you remember what Isaiah promised? The light is coming. He then says, the light has come. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God. This is saying Jesus is God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. This wasn't a mystical opening to who is Jesus. Word, light, beginning. Ooh. No, this was a moment of him saying, hey, what was promised there by Isaiah? The people walking in darkness, a light has come, because unto them a child is born, is here now. And the moment he was born... His rule and reign was established. You see, the fact that light has come illuminates and brings color. That's what Jesus does. He illuminates and brings color. You see, we could be potentially of that opinion, all right, Jesus has come, his light is here, and his light is blinding. Yes, it is. When you fully see the wonder and majesty of who Jesus is, it can feel blinding. And we can maybe feel like we're going to start singing, oh, blinded by your light. No, when Jesus' light comes, it fills our life, it illuminates how we should live. It's like on a dark night when you're walking with your dog and you suddenly come across a house littered with lights. It suddenly provides you to know, actually, I'm not alone. It's warmth. But not only does it illuminate, also adds color. 
adds color to the life that we get. Sometimes I think we can think, oh yeah, following Jesus is monochrome. No, it's not just black and white. It's technicolor. That Jesus, the light giver, brings technicolor into our lives. We feel like we're inviting people in to following Jesus, which is this kind of way of living that's just about yeses and noes. No, the following of Jesus is about life and life in full. It's like understanding. We don't get to see things in black and white. Suddenly we realize the world is technicolored. And we also get to know, man, and this isn't yet full of his love, mercy, and goodness. And one day, one day, I'm edging into Rich's territory, but one day, this world will be renewed. And we'll see colors that we never imagined possible. I love the writings of C.S. Lewis in this book, in the Chronicles series, uh, Chronicles of Narnia series. In the last one, the last battle, he tries to use word pictures to describe what it's like. And he talks about there being colors that we've not yet imagined, fruit that we've not yet tasted. He says that it's like this world, yet fuller. Because this world just feels like a shadow of what is to come. And we're invited, we're inviting people into a technicolored life. Maybe this morning you're here and you're saying, but I'm not one who said I want to follow Jesus. I'm trying to investigate this. Well, the invitation for you is to understand that Jesus has come in order that you can have a life flooded with his light, which provides you the fact that you're not alone. It provides you warmth, but it provides you this understanding. You get this life, a life in full that is full and rich with technicolor. What does that look like, though? Well, Isaiah allows us to see the wonder of his technicolor. He describes this king, Jesus, and he says, what's he like? Well, he's like a wonderful counselor. That word, wonderful counselor, it would be better translated supernatural counselor. That's weird, isn't it? That's why we don't have it there. Wonderful counselor, that sounds wonderful counselor. And we're kind of all thinking, it sounds, sounds good, sings right. What does it mean? Supernatural counselor, supernatural provider of wisdom. Wow. Well, that, that's suddenly like a different kind of way of looking at it, isn't it? Suddenly we're talking about one who has to be God because it's supernatural. And one who's providing wisdom. One who's providing a way for us to live that will do us good. I don't know if you read the accounts of Jesus, but it seems like whenever he taught, people were just stunned and were left amazed. My favorite story about Jesus and him leaving people amazed is actually when he's a child. There's only one account, really, of him as a child in Luke. And it's a moment where it looks like it's bad parenting, where it seems like his mum and dad are taking him for the big celebration in Jerusalem. They go with a load of people from the village. They get there. Three days later, realize that, oh, no, where's Jesus? Now, at that point, now, I've lost my kids. I've told many stories about losing my kids. I've never lost them for three days. Generally, we discover within moments we've lost them. It might take us a while to find them, but we discover in moments. At this point, we think, man, Mary and Joseph were bad. No, no, it's just a different moment. It's that they lived within a community where actually Jesus was being cared for by everyone in the community. So they just thought he was with someone else. Traveling back. Suddenly within the traveling, discover, oh, I thought you had him. I thought you had him. I thought you had him. Oh, I thought you had him. It wasn't me. I've heard that many times. Um, 
And in this moment, we find that Mary and Joseph like go back to Jerusalem. You know, this is a city. You know, party time. Like, where do you find a kid? And they're going around asking, have you seen, have you seen, have you seen? And I wonder whether, and this is me now, kind of thinking outside the box slightly, I wonder if there were rumors. Well, I've heard about this kid, and he's at the temple, and he seems to be talking with all the religious leaders, you know, the ones that no one asks questions with. But it is just amazing. And it says that Mary and Joseph go there, and it says this about that moment. After three days, Luke 2, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Just, I also love Luke's account here, because I think it's just a great play on words. So he's listening to them and asking them questions. And then suddenly, it says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. I mean, sorry. I thought he was listening and asking questions. And yet somehow in the winsomeness of Jesus, even at this moment as a small child, the answers he gave within the discussions were going on, people were amazed. Why? Supernatural wisdom. The thing is, we have access to this all the time. The one who provides supernatural wisdom is there at our disposal who's longing to give us ways of how we should live our life. We don't have to kind of think, I'm just going to take a jump and punt for this. No, Jesus has said, actually, this is the way you can live that will do you good. And a great place that can start is just read what he says in this Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, whether we like it or not, has shaped much of Western culture. We're now trying to undo it all because we think maybe it wasn't going to work. Well, no, no. Jesus is teaching about forgiveness, justice, mercy, love. It's profound. He's subtly been going on from 2,000 years of this gathering of 120 that he left on the planet and said, this is how you live. And subtly it's permeated throughout the world. So we get to points where we think, oh no, but what about this election? This is the main one. At this election, this decision will change the world. No. It's already changed. The one who has supernatural wisdom has already come and provided a way. The question is, will we listen and will we learn and will we live in it? So first of all, the color is supernatural wisdom. Second one is that he will be mighty God. Now that moment of mighty God is Isaiah wants us to be clear, this isn't just any old person, this isn't just any old king, this is God king. So he makes it clear, this is deity, this is God. But he's also mighty, see, if it's a king, surely he has to have some power. Surely he can do something. You see, we're talking about a moment of darkness, of oppression. So we need someone who has some might so he can do something about the darkness. And light will always do something about darkness. Truth is, light will always overtake darkness. But what is that might? You see, the danger is at this point, we think of might as we think of ourselves. However much we try not to, we think, oh yeah, I know what might is. It's that I can lift a bench press a number of things. To me, it's I can bench press, I don't know, probably two kilograms. Um, for others in this room, it's a lot bigger. And so we think of personal might, or more, maybe it's personal ability. Or maybe we think of superpowers of our day and think, oh, that's what might is. But the truth is, when we look at Jesus, we're talking about a different level of might. 
And to be honest, I could do lots of things, but I think the easiest way to do it is just look at the Bible and say, what does it talk about in terms of Jesus and might? And for me, the scripture above all others that helps me see in word picture format the might of who Jesus is, is in Colossians 1. I want to look at it through a paraphrased version of the message. As I think Peterson got hold of just the wonder and beauty of who Jesus is. And so he says this, we look at this son, Jesus, and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this very moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes, organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. You see, he was supreme in the beginning, and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood, poured the, his blood that poured down from the cross. That's the wonder of who Jesus is. That's the might of who Jesus is. The one who doesn't just deal with our world, but the whole of the universe. And says, in respect to the whole of the universe... I'm mighty enough to make this whole. Now, some of us at that point think, yeah, yeah, but you don't know the size of the universe. As far as I understand it, the universe seems to be unending. That's what they keep saying to me, that, that the edge of the universe just seems to be extending. Therefore, what I think then is that doesn't unbox me in terms of who God is. It rather reveals the size of the box that God is contained in. It is an unending, unlimited box. That is, that Jesus towers above the whole of an unending universe. Now, if that doesn't scramble your brains, I don't know what will. But that's the might of who he is. Now, at that point, you then think, well, what kind of king is he? With that level of might, is he going to dominate? No, no, he uses his might to liberate, to bring freedom. In order that he can remove the yokes that weigh us down and oppress us. And liberate us from anything and anyone who's trying to help hold us captive. In order that we can know that liberation the light provides, that we're now children of God forever loved. But not only does he liberate us, he also then provides his strength to strengthen us in the lives that we then live. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. That Jesus is the one who knows you who longs to care for you and longs to provide for you. And we just have to think back a few weeks, don't you? Don't we? We've just been in a series formed in prayer, looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we looked at the beginning of that. Our Father, what kind of Father is He? Well, He's a Father like this. Hopefully, let me get to the next slide. The, the Father will come on in a moment. The Father is one who is full of patience, kindness, mercy, comfort, provision. He's one who's always seeking after our best. He's a father who longs to provide for us. This is the kind of father we have. 
And it isn't that we're then to disconnect, think, oh yeah, but we've done the Lord's Prayer. No, no, we get to see that and say, actually, no, what we've learned about who God is as Father, that's how Jesus in his rule and reign is wanting to be for us. There we go. And so we get to see this and we take it on and say, actually, this is who, this everlasting Father, the word everlasting is eternal, is to you and to me. The technicolor of the life that he's able to offer is one where he's eternally seeking to be our Father who seeks to provide, seeks to care for us in every way we need. And then lastly, it says that he is our prince of peace. He is the ruler of wholeness. And what, a, what a title, ruler of wholeness. That not only is he whole in who he is, he's able to offer everyone and anyone who comes and lives within the light that he provides, the technicolor that he offers, wholeness. Wholeness in how we relate within ourselves. Wholeness in how we relate to one another. Wholeness in how we relate to God. Wholeness in how we relate to the whole of creation. That's what's on offer. Jesus says, this is who I am. Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light that is a baby that came and in the moment of his birth, it announced the wonderful counselor, the supernatural one of all wisdom is here. The mighty God, the one who can liberate, rescue and strengthen you is here. The one who is the everlasting Father, the one who will eternally, forever care and provide for you, is here. And the one who is the Prince of Peace, the one who is the ruler of all wholeness, is here. And to anyone who will receive him, the light comes and fills our lives with his technicolor. Which then means, will we receive him? Will we receive him? See, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes this in verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. Paul's saying here, the God who at the very beginning called light out of nothing, uses the same power to cause his light to flood into the very core of who you and I are. And the question then is, will we receive it? Maybe today it's, will you receive it for the first time? Maybe you've never fully understood what does it mean this, that God who comes and lives amongst us, and we know that he lived, we died, and he rose again, but what does that fully mean? What it means, will you receive him? Will you receive the life that he offers? A life where you can know wholeness, a life where you can know forgiveness, love, acceptance. Will you receive it? But for many of us, we say, no, no, I have received it. Well, for us, will we receive it afresh today? Will you receive the light that Jesus brings afresh to your heart today? Will I? Will I receive it today afresh? Oh no, I've done it, I've done it. I did it, age 14, I received the light of Jesus. No, no, 
a daily occurrence, a daily invitation to allow the light to flood in of who Jesus is into the core of who I am. Why? Because darkness surrounds me. How do you need to receive the light of Jesus today? Do you need his wisdom? Do you need his freedom and strength? Do you need his comfort and provision? I'm loving that one at the moment. Do you need his wholeness? Because he stands and he says, here am I. Will you receive? And it's as easy as that. It's as easy as just saying, yes, I receive. There's an amazing carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The third verse is this, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. Everything that we've just spoken of. Heaven is the place where God is, where his rule and reign are. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin or darkness, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. It's as simple as that. It takes our vulnerability of saying, Jesus, I need you. And something that can seem twee that we sing, suddenly we realize is the most profound statement we could ever make. In meekness today, I receive you, Jesus. And so I'm going to invite now, the band are going to come back up, and we're actually going to get to sing this carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Our first carol of the Christmas season And in seeing this, I want us to bear in mind everything that we've just looked at. Because this carol tells the story of the darkness, but the light that has come. Not in something, but someone, Jesus, who is God. And as we sing it, I want us to think and, and question for ourselves, how do we need to receive him afresh today? Is it for the first time, say, Jesus, I receive you and the life you have for me? Or is it in one of those specific ways saying, Jesus, I receive you? And as we sing this, we're then going to pass out communion. At this point, you're thinking, man, sorry, we're singing a carol? And we're going to do communion? Yes. Because I felt like what fitting response to receive him than to celebrate communion together. And so what I'd ask you to do is just to, we're going to stand now to sing the carol. As we sing it, do you can stand. Don't feel embarrassed. I'll keep talking for a moment. That as we receive the bread and juice, can we keep hold of it? And then we're going to share it together because it's so beautiful to share together, though knowing that Jesus is going to come and meet with us individually together. Just where you are, I just want to pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the wonder of who you are. I thank you in our world of darkness, you came and brought the eternal light. And I thank you that your light has substance. I thank you had light that has substance that changes and shapes our lives differently now. And Jesus, we want to receive afresh of you today. I thank you that we are your children. And that in being your children, Father, you long for us to live more and more in the wisdom that you offer, in the freedom that you offer in the comfort and provision you offer and in the wholeness that you give us. 
And I pray for each and every one of us, I pray would you cause us to receive more of that afresh today. And I pray that we do the same tomorrow and the next day. And I thank you for this period of Advent. I thank you for the darkness that reminds us of your light that rushes in. And I thank you, we get to know many moments over this season of your warmth, of the fact that you are now with us. We ask that for your great name, Jesus. Amen.